Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dracula class number 14, the end of our long uh, examination of Dracula and some of its modern adaptations, uh, of course, made longer by uh, some of our uh, delays and issues there in the middle of the uh, of this uh, of this seminar. But let's finish up talking about the uh, the adaptations today. Now, probably you're thinking that there's no way I can possibly finish this class out today since I didn't even really finish the last film and I have now an entire other film to talk about tonight and I still want to, you know, talk about, do some kind of general conclusions thinking through these adaptations in connection with the book and in relationship with each other. Um, but we're totally going to do all that tonight and that's exactly what's going to happen. And the way that that's... Uh, um, the way that that's going to happen is uh, I, I'm not going to look at near. I'm, I only have a few clips that I want to look at uh, from Dracula 2000. I'm 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 restricting myself uh, very uh, uh, very 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 rigorously here uh, in my discussion here today, um, and I want to focus more on the big picture. But first, a reminder. Two weeks from tonight, July 6th, is when we are going to begin our discussion of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lost Road, Volume 5 in the History of Middle-Earth series. Um, uh, we'll look at the uh, the birth of the Numenor legend, uh, so I hope you'll be able to join me for that. Uh, please don't feel shy if you haven't read the rest of the volumes of the History of Middle-Earth. Uh, 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 you, can, you can pick up with us in The Lost Road, and we will... Uh, um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, we'll work through it together. No worries. Um, so I hope you can join me for that again. Two weeks from uh, two weeks from tonight is when we're going to be in this. We'll be off next week, and then we'll start the Lost Road after that. Now, um, let's. Uh, I want to. I want to begin with um, going back to the end of the last film. Um, because I, we didn't get nearly enough time to talk about this. I said a few things about it as we were ending, and in fact, I was already like way over time, so I, I didn't say too much. But I want to watch this last clip again, just the last clip. Um, because I want to focus on where does this leave us at the end, right? Where, where, where are we brought to at the end of this film? Um, and in particular, how do we see the two, two of the major things that we were looking at, that is both the way in which this film handles the, the, the spiritual element of Dracula, you know, the Christian element of Dracula, which is, which is definitely a prominent feature in this film as well, as well as how it works the love thing out, right? And where do we end up at the end? And there's, I, I find the ending of this, um, uh, kind of complex. So I want to see if we can kind of unpack it a little bit together and see where this film is really kind of putting us here at the end. So, uh, so okay. So where were, we were beginning this, right? Oh, that's right. We have the phallic Bowie knife uh, still sticking out of Dracula's chest and his throat like partially severed by Jonathan so that we have the near death wound, but we still have plenty of opportunity. So he's there and Mina's time comes, will you do the same to me? Right. Will you? Now, see, that in itself is an interesting question, right? Um, when my time comes, will you do the same to me? And I can't really tell. Like, what answer is she looking for to this question? Of course, because it's a, a question that's very 
uh, parallel, of course, to the question that she asks in the book. In fact, you'll remember she does this entire ceremony where she insists that all of the men, and especially Jonathan, swear an oath that they will treat her exactly that way, that they'll stab her in the heart and cut off her head uh, if, uh, if, if it gets that. And she has them read the service for the dead from the, from the, uh, the Book of Common Prayer right uh, over her. So, you know, I mean, honestly, when, you know... Will you? I'm like, is this a trick question, Mina? I mean, yes. Wait, no. Uh, hang on. Like, I, honestly, I don't know what she wants. Um, and it's been a little bit uncertain, right? The way that I mean, we didn't look at this in too much detail. But especially the way uh, that the film here handles Mina and her interaction with the three vampire women and with Van Helsing at the end, right, where she seems to be turned around and to be entirely on the women's side, which is something we don't see in the book, right, when she begins to do, like, the seduction thing with Van Helsing, which is, like, super creepy. But anyway, uh, she does it. Um and uh, and it seems so. It seems like she's just kind of taking him in, and then just in order to reject him, I guess. So she doesn't actually want to kill him. She wants to humiliate him. Which, like, on the one hand, I can kind of sympathize with because Van Helsing in this movie is an incredible jerk. Um, but still, it's like, where is she exactly? Where is her will situated? Interesting, even again that we have Mina with a rifle, right? Which we get, you know, Mina bearing arms, you know, at the end of the book. Um, but instead of covering the, uh, you know, the, the, the gypsies as they're called in the, in the movie and Dracula, she's turning the gun on her husband. Um, so that would seem to imply a reversal of her point of view. Right. But then what? So where does that leave us then? What is she then like pro-vampire, she did choose, right? She did choose to allow... I mean, the, obviously the dynamics of her being bitten by Dracula and her, you know, vampire baptism of blood is almost completely reversed, right? Where she is the one who not only consents to this, but even requests it. And in fact, um, you know, if uh, if there's any physical forcing going on, um, it's uh, it's she who forces him, not the other way around in that scene as we looked at it before. So, okay, so her will seems to be oriented in rather a different direction than it was. She is not the innocent, uh, sweet, and extremely innocent. Innocent in the sense, like, morally innocent, not necessarily uh, uh, innocent in the sense of, like, innocent as the opposite of experienced, right? She is, of course, in this at this point in the story, in the book, um, very much affected by her experiences, right? Very much not the naive uh, little girl. And yet, you know, her purity, her moral purity is something that the book really insists upon. Um, so, and, 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 and her will being, uh, being sort of focused entirely on humility and goodness and love, even love, even generous love and understanding and forgiveness for Dracula himself, such that Jonathan has a hard time even understanding, right? Don't ask me, right? He can't, he, he can't bear to think of her asking him to kill her any more than he can imagine having mercy on Dracula and lumping in, you know, he won't hear of kind of lumping Mina and Dracula into the same category, right? Again, that seems to be something that's reversed here, 
right? So, okay. So are we just in opposite land then, right? Is, I mean, is this is this just things completely reversed? I'm not really sure. Again, you know, Yana suggests uh, that uh, uh, Mina herself doesn't seem entirely sure uh, kind of what she wants here. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't really know. I'm not sure either. But then Jonathan Harker had... Notice the wolf running past in the background there, right? They do that a lot in this film. Just kind of, you know, wolves in the background. Berserker, or the wolf in the role of Berserker, whether or not they call him, they don't actually call him that in the dialogue, um, does, seems to do that a lot. Just kind of walk by in the background. No! no wait! No! Let them go! Let them go! Our work is finished here. Hers has just begun. That's good. If he could have mustered a, an actual British accent, that might have been a really powerful line. Uh, though inscrutable, right? Um, so, um, yeah, Karita, I agree. Jonathan Harker having a rare moment of insight. I, that's, that's, I find this really remarkable for that reason. And, and I only wish that Keanu could have... Well, okay, I was going to say that Keanu could have delivered the lines, um, but then he wouldn't be Keanu. Um but anyway, yeah, so the point is, though, Jonathan Harker, the character, if I can try to push past the terrible acting, um, he is, he does have insight here into what's going on. It's a little bit unclear. I mean, again, when I rewatched this film for the first time, you know, just in the in the last few, I hadn't seen this film in years uh, uh, before I saw, before I watched it again uh, in the last few weeks, several times, Um my, I mean, when I saw that scene, when he said that, I was, I actually said, huh? Aloud. Like, I didn't get hers has just begun. Like, what are we talking about? But he seems to acknowledge that, um, um, he seems to acknowledge that basically that the, 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 there's a final step that has to be made and that it has to be made by her that is that she you know like that the real kind of i mean does this mean that the real battle is like for mina's own heart like her own choice and he recognizes that she has to be left to make her own choice or something like that um uh yeah tony is suggesting that he's saying that you know whatever happens to her uh is now is her own choice and not theirs that seems to be kind of along the line uh there james Lebeck says it uh the reincarnation story seems to make mina's motivation much less clear i agree james one thing that i think that's it's kind of interesting that the film seems to steer clear of is any kind of simply like overriding like we don't get any kind of multiple personality business kind of going on it's it, with mina right it's not like she's mina harker one minute and then like the spirit of elisabetta or something kind of you know it's she's not like going back and forth she doesn't you know uh have sort of radical shifts like that her own personality her own character seems to be stable essentially um she has the memories right the sort of the dreams and the memories she can she can sort of access that stuff but yet there's not really a question of like is mina harker really driving the bus right it really is it really is in that sense a drama about mina uh herself um but i agree james well it's not only that it makes her motivation less clear it's also that it makes well i don't know exactly how to put it I mean, I guess what I want to say is what she's supposed to do, less clear. But do you understand what I mean by supposed to do? I don't even mean sort of morally here. It's just like, 
what's a good ending? In the book, the happy ending was clear, right? I mean, the happy ending is sort of qualified, or I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a, a solemnity given to it by the death of Quincy Morris, the self-sacrificial death of Quincy Morris. Um, but, uh, but, uh, but, but there's no question, like, we know building up to it, right? What, what a good outcome looks like. The good outcome is going to be the destruction of Dracula and the liberation of Mina from her curse, right? And so that the spot is going to be removed from her forehead. That's, that's clearly what a good ending looks like. James, for me, the main thing that's shifted... Exactly, James, we don't know the desired outcome. That's much less clear here, right? Um, and, and in particular, James, exactly as you're saying, the whole reincarnation situation, Mina Harker and Elisabetta have almost diametrically opposed different positive outcomes, right? Um, the separation from Dracula and, and his destruction is not at all um, the happy ending for Elisabetta, right? In fact, if anything, that seems to be a recapitulation. Or rather like, so the movie ends with finally bringing to pass the, her worst fears from the beginning, right? She thought he was going to go off and get killed, and then in the end, he finally does get killed, right? The end, and everybody but her lives happily ever after. I mean, it's so it certainly does complicate the... Uh, um, the the situation. Um, yeah, Tony Mead is interested in the uh, the the way that the Christian idea of salvation uh, works into this. We're going to get to that, Tony, or at least I think I think the film's going to get to that. Um, anyway, so off they go. I mean, I get that we want to relocate to the chapel because the chapel is really the perfect setting for this last scene between the two of them. But I have to admit that this this scene, especially like Dracula in his death throes, not only getting up off the ground and staggering out, but opening the door <laughs> like this, like, oh, no, I'm fine. I'll get the door. Yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> It's 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 a little awkward, right? I mean, I I think I could I think I could have done without that visual. And then meanwhile, this look over his face, Arthur's like, "Who is that rude person making?" Oh no, wait, it's Quincy. Busy dying. He's all become God's madman. That's, of course, a line from the book. I don't understand exactly the... Um, I've long... I, yeah, I, 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 I don't get it fully. Um, in part because I always have a hard time with that when a line is taken straight from the book but dislocated into a, a completely different context within the, the score, the, the story, I always have a really hard, I mean, it always kind of takes me aback and I've got to, cause I think about that line still in its original context. Um, and the original context of that line, of course, is Van Helsing talking to Dr. Seward uh, and, you know, in the context of the whole, like we have to be open-minded and be willing to accept things that, uh, that we don't norm, you know, that we wouldn't normally accept that we even that we might consider insane and he's making the parallel just as you dr seward have these madmen in your care we are all god's madmen in the sense that we are all in the care of god right um 
what Van Helsing means by it here, especially in the context of his character and everything, Karita thinks uh, that it's um, it's means something like this. You know, uh, this was all this was all pointless. Something like that, maybe. I I, I don't. Um, I don't know, and especially that that that's Van Helsing's last line. I mean, he was all dancing around and laughing and saying wildly inappropriate things just when he discovered that it was Dracula uh, who was behind this, and now and his like been his life's goal apparently uh, for some reason not really disclosed in the film um, to destroy Dracula, and yet here he now like that's been practically achieved, though Dracula in his mortal death throes has politely just excused himself to go die elsewhere. But apart from that, I mean, he's, he's basically almost with his own eyes, seen the fulfillment of his life dream. And yet now he's like totally sober and apparently totally over it. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. But anyway, let's move on to the real, to the meaty part. Okay. Okay. We start and end the final scene here with the, uh, uh, the chapel, roof, right? The chapel ceiling, which is Dracula in his original armor, which remember his original armor, uh, the, the, the armor of Dracula as knight of the cross, right? You know, the, the knight defend, you know, that in, he talks about this a lot, right? How he was out there, uh, defending, uh, uh, the cross of Christianity against, uh, against the Saracens. So, okay, so we have that. And, of course, Elisabetta. Now, I don't know the provenance of this piece of ceiling work, that is to say. Did Dracula the Vampire commission this after his and Elisabetta's deaths? Or does this predate that? Is this like from during their engagement period when they were still happy? As she doesn't necessarily look dead, I think, in this picture. Um, uh, I kind of like to think um, that this is the sort of the two of them alive beforehand. Besides which, it's a little hard for me to imagine Vampire Dracula commissioning art of this kind in the chapel of all places. Um, so, uh, yeah, Nancy thinks he might have a little trouble commissioning artists. I don't know, Nancy. I mean, he might be able to compel them in various ways, right? Um, uh, you know, bringing people back to his castle for unspeakable rights, some of which might include um, uh, uh, you know, guilt ceiling work in the chapel, but Anyway, whatever. Uh, so I'm going to go with the, with the idea that this is pre uh, this. What's the what's the opposite of posthumous? There should be a word. It doesn't come up. The need for it doesn't come up that often, right? Is there a word for like before? Is <laughs> yeah, uh, 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 pre prehumous. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Alive. Yeah, I know. Right. Exactly. But that's not good enough. Okay. I want to, I want an exact, I want an exact parallel to posthumous except, uh, living. Right. Come on. Is that so much to ante mortem? All right. All right. Alyssa, I like it. I like it. Yeah. Ante mortem. So uh, I'm going to believe that this was an ante mortem commission by Dracula pre-mortem. Now, see, that makes it sound like that makes it it's like post-mortem, but pre-mortem. You know, that's, that's, that, that's a little too autopsy for me. Anyway, okay, okay, okay. Uh, 
Uh, <laughs> point is, okay, so that the two of them are, are alive. Now, if we take that, then the cool thing here is that her positioning foreshadows her death, right? Because if you think even like where it is in the building, right, she looks exactly here like she did when she was laid out dead, right, after she was apparently fetched out of the river. Um, and so, like, the ceiling there is like a direct reflection. So it's almost like an imprint, but it, but it's, but it's, see, it's cooler if it's a anti-mortem work because uh, it would, um, it would then, it would, it would foreshadow her death, right? There she lies with him sort of standing over her. But so in the, in, in the image, right, the two of them are like embracing, um, but, um, but it would be sort of him standing over. And again, if you think about the parallel, as she in that in that opening scene when she died is going to be lying there in front of the altar dead, he's going to be standing there in front of the altar with his arms spread up like this, looking straight up and shouting blasphemies up at God. Right. Which is kind of exactly the posture that he's in here. So the anticipation of what's going to happen is kind of cool. Right. OK, so. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm going with the anti-mortem uh, 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 look here. And Carolyn, you're right. The imagery does suggest that it looks like they're kind of floating in the air. There is something angelic about this. It is, uh, it is rather, um, uh, as uh, somebody was pointing out, Arthur was pointing out, it is a little bit Sistine Chapel-esque, right? Uh, definitely, definitely agree. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Karita asks, wouldn't Dracula have destroyed this in a fit of rage if that were the case? Um, nah, I'm going with no, because he, he like, you know, so he, 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 he wrought a bit of destruction in here. But then he, he, he's not been in here since then. I'm going with that. Right. So so it's all it's all good. Still surviving. Anyway, OK. So now notice he's lying in the same place. That Elisabetta was lying at the beginning, but notice his positioning is different, right? He is perpendicular to how she was, so it's not, it's, that is, it's clearly not a direct parallel in that way. We're not supposed to be seeing them directly juxta. I mean, there, there is the juxtaposition, but, but his orientation is different, and that seems to me really important, right? Because he's not like she lying along the steps. Instead, he's oriented in the same direction as the cross, Right. So just as the cross is in his, the axis of his body matches the axis of the cross, which and Rico was just pointing that out. Exactly. I think that that's um, um, that that's good. Oh, uh, Tom Hillman had one had made one last good point. Sorry, Tom, we'll get back to this in a second here. Um, uh, he says, uh, Tom says it looks uh, to him rather like they're falling rather than floating. So a, a pre-mortem, pre-lapsarian preview <laughs> or something, Tom. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, th- it is interesting, right? It does reflect. I mean, it, this could almost be a mirror, right? Reflecting that final scene, right? With her lying dead and him screaming. Um, but you're right. Since it is inverted on the ceiling, it is also like he's he's falling headfirst, right? And she's sort of floating down. So, yeah. I can, um, uh, I can, I can, I can, I can see that. Um, oh yeah, Philip points out that it's a prescient painting. So see, Tom, you should have worked prescient into that as well. And you could have gotten like a fifth. Anyway, so, okay. I'm sorry. So we were, we were here, here we were, uh, with him and the cross. Why is my God 
Did he just say, where is my God first? Dude, I completely missed that every other time I um I watched this scene. Every single other I watched this scene ten times, I missed that every single My God, where is my God? He has forsaken me. Um which means, yes, of course, Philip, this is obviously a parallel to Jesus' saying on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Um, and the, the use of the first person pronoun there, my God, makes that parallel more, uh, uh, more clear. So if we, and he's pointing up at the cross here, right? Uh, so if we missed the whole, like, I am oriented with the cross and I'm like the suffering of Dracula is parallel to the crucifixion, we are reminded here with this quotation, right? Um, okay. But, but we have to think about, it's, it's not only a reference, right? We have to think about the denotation of that as well. The only way, the best way, it seems to me, that I can figure out how to understand that is understanding this in terms of like a flashback, right? So in this moment, now, as he's coming to die, he seems to be sort of mentally returning to where he was when last he was in this room, right? Um, <clears throat> that, uh, uh, you know, because he was speaking in, in, in very same, very, very similar ways at the beginning when he was talking about how, you know, his God had betrayed him after all that he, Dracula, did for him, God, right, in fighting for him and defending, his, you know, the cross and all that stuff, right? Um, uh, certainly the Dracula that we have seen throughout the course of the film who was, you know, dismissing the crucifix as an idol and, 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 and all of those things, breaking them and melting them. Well, the ladies melted them, but you know what I mean? And setting them on fire would not have uttered the phrase, my God, right? So the fact that he is now suggests that he's in a different place mentally, right? Um, and again, since we're back in this room, it seems like li very likely to say that that place is sort of that he's kind of returning back to that moment. Especially, of course, with the parallel that, again, we have Dracula and Elisabetta, although now he's the dying one and she's the grieving one. Um, uh, so, okay. All right. So so we've got the 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 the, the parallel with the lovers, right? We're, except the reversal with the lovers, and we're getting, what are we getting? Are we getting repentance? That's way too, way too early to suggest something like that yet, right? I mean, just that, that one phrase. In fact, he's still accusing him of, 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 um, of abandoning him, but it seems conceivable, right? Tony Mead is wondering if this is like the ultimate deathbed conversion, right? Yeah, it's like the, the undeathbed conversion, right? Uh, maybe. I mean, I, but well, let's, let's not jump to conclusions here, right? But in any case, he's, he certainly is in a different place. Even though he's still talking about God abandoning him, he's talking about it in a very different way than we've heard before. And of course, as we were pointing, we cannot lose sight of the fact that we are getting an explicit Dracula-Jesus parallel here. Right, and so we need to make sure that we pursue that. And as I did, I mention the parallel between him and Jesus, right? Um, okay, so uh, she seems to be attempting her reaction to that. Uh, you know, it seems to be that he wants, she wants to take the knife out. She seems to be trying to pull the knife out, right? Um, which apparently she's having a hard time doing. And he closes his hand over hers and says, still pointing, 
right? Still pointing up at the cross. Um, uh, uh, he says, it is finished, right? Um, and now, again, we have to... I, I, I mean, I can't, anyway, possibly overlook the parallel there, or the, the illusion there. Again, this is Jesus' last words on the cross. It is finished. And... Yeah, Karina, you're right. They are not being shy about this Dracula Jesus thing, right? I mean, I think we 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 have nobody to blame but ourselves for not thinking about it at this point, right? So, what do we do with that? Well, let's hang on. Let's not jump to any conclusions yet because we have to see where the because they could be they could be going in a couple different ways with this, right? Um, this could be. Remember, of course, Dracula and Jesus were parallel in the book too, inverted though, right? We were getting the whole you know, unchrist thing, right? The whole anti-Jesus business with Dracula. Um, but the parallels, nevertheless, were, were still really important, right? Um, are they doing that same kind of thing? I mean, are we supposed to be seeing sort of the parallel, but the contrast between them? Are we getting reversed? But it doesn't look like a reversal. Not of the same kind, anyway, that was in the book. This isn't like the un-Jesus doing the opposite of what Jesus did. Um... This is uh, this is him following in Jesus's footsteps in a sense. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Hillman says she offers to take uh, this cup away from him by removing the knife, and he refuses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and again, and and when he, he says it is finished, as if his death, like Jesus's on the cross, was meant to accomplish something. Right. So, yeah, I'm seeing I'm not seeing contrast. I'm seeing I'm seeing clear parallel uh, in that way. Um, uh, (laughs) Carita wants me to come up with a punchy explanation about why he's dressed like a Christmas ornament. Um, uh, Okay, Uh, let me work on that. Well, he's dressed. um, uh, Who was saying before that he was um, that he was. Yeah, you know, Carolyn, I was thinking about that. I'm glad that I'm not crazy to have been thinking about that. Carolyn said that the costumer says she based his robe on Gustav Klimt's painting The Kiss. And I was, I, Carolyn, I was, I was, I see now it's too late for me to say that and get credit for it. But I was thinking of that painting uh, uh, when I saw this robe the first time. Um, I would say the costumer definitely succeeded in, uh, in um, suggesting that, um, uh, that, uh, in, in suggesting that parallel, uh, Carolyn says that she was thinking about the kiss that Mina gives to him. Um, okay. He also, somebody was suggesting that he kind of looks like the Pope. Uh, maybe, maybe that would explain the Christmas ornament thing, Carita. We could do something with that, but, um, um, but okay, let's, so let's, let's, let's keep thinking about the, the, it is finished thing. So the, 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 the Jesus Dracula thing going on here, um, and again, we can't lose sight of the love story, right? The love story is a huge element here. Again, just in case we could possibly lose sight of it, those are the, the, the these two things: the Mina Elisabetta Dracula romance story and the uh, unfinished business between Jesus and Dracula story are coming into collision here. We can't avoid either one of them, and it's important that we not only leave neither one of them aside, but that we don't uh, try to like unnecessarily uh, kind of um, 
separate them. <laughs> Arthur says his robe looks more like Mardi Gras, but of course, Dracula would never uh, go to New Orleans. Yeah, I, uh, I hear you there, Arthur. The nasty kiss. Okay, so um, she calls him my love. Now, I mean, he's clearly looking egregiously unpleasant, right? Um, I mean, this uh, this facial state, um, this facial state in which they have frozen him here at the end in his death agonies is really interesting, right? I, I mean, I said, because you know, think about like the many faces of Dracula that we get in this film, right? Because remember, this film is really big on those intermediary states between the full human Dracula, um, you know, in his dashing, attractive, uh, uh, you know, uh, looking all soulful and vaguely like John Lennon uh, appearance. But then at the same time, we get, at least with the glasses, I can't avoid the John Lennon thing. Um, but uh, but anyway, okay, okay. So we get we we get that appearance, and we get the wolves, and we get the bats. But but he spends a lot of time in that wolfman appearance, in that batman appearance, halfway between the bestial and the human, and entirely monstrous, right? And it's obviously not merely a transitional state. Right. It's not a transitional state. It's not like he just happened to be caught in the middle of turning from a man into a bat and was left in this awkward half bat. Uh, But he's like that for a long time, for like whole scenes at a time. He's like that. Um, just as with the wolf, in fa- you know, in fact, it's he's in the wolf man uh, shape when he bites Lucy and other things with Lucy for the first time. Right. So, um, uh, though, of course, he shifts entirely into wolf form, which we almost never see him do again in order to bite Lucy for the last time. Right. When he's really kind of fully, un- you know, really angry and unleashing sort of the full savagery of his hatred and anger and resentment which is, remember, the scene that's in parallel with uh, Mina and Jonathan's wedding. So, marvelously. Um, uh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, Yana, you're right. Man-bat would be a much uh, clearer and um, less um, ideologically crowded way to say that than Batman. I agree with you. Um, okay, okay, okay. But, uh, but, but again, the point is this, this, this film is very interested in those intermediary states, and we've seen several of those, right? This is different. It's not that we've never seen this before, but what is this exactly? Like, what's, what's I mean, is this lizard? Thing? I mean, like, the nostrils look, I mean, looks vaguely like, the, has, a, has, a, has a more prominent nose than Lord Voldemort, but not very much, right? I mean, it's, uh, uh, it, it's like the, like the nose of Lord Voldemort and the cheekbones of, of, of Gollum. I don't, uh, um, I, yeah, um, I don't really, I don't really know. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, Carolyn. I think that's that's a good way of saying it. Carolyn says um, uh, he looks most like a human corpse. Um, yes, yes. Um, and Tony Medus was suggesting maybe it's him on the way to looking his true age. That also seems possible or likely. What he looks like here is an old and disfigured man. 
not half a beast, half a man, right? Um, but like a man who has been stretched out long past his time. Sorry, sorry. Stop with the golem stuff. But anyway, you see what I mean, right? He's been, he's been, uh, uh, he, he looks like an old and withered, monstrous man here. He's still got the claws going on, right? The long, pointy fingers and uh, the fangs and everything. But the hair, right? The sort of thin, grayish, white hair. Um, uh, and uh, I mean, he's, he's all desiccated, right? No, no, Yana, not fresh corpse, Right, uh, desiccated corpse is 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 what they're is what they're going for here. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's interesting as well, right? So he's in a, he's in a fully human aspect, not a bestial aspect, but it's a uh, uh, but it's an aspect of of death, his own death, it would seem here, right? And yet, she's calling him my love, and she kisses him. I mean, even like the nasty blood. Whose blood is on his face? Is it Quincy's blood on his face? Um, I can't even remember whose blood is on his face. Uh, it doesn't really matter. But any, I mean, because like he's some of the like the chest blood is his own blood, right? But the all stuff all around his mouth is clearly somebody else's. Don't remember. Anyway, point is, um, uh, uh. So she, nevertheless, all she sees is her love, right? And she kisses him. And that look right there, that lifting of the head and the looking at her, right, seems to me to register this kind of um, uh, amazement, right? Um, And I like his eyes, right? In the midst of his deformed, uh, twisted, dried-out human face, uh, his eyes are still like the soulful brown eyes, right, uh, that we talked about before. Um, that is, you know, those the, the, the eyes, you know, those, those, those eyes that he would look at her with, you know, before. Um, so, okay, so... He looks at her and seem in surprise, like, seriously, this is, uh, uh, like, he seems surprised that she is expressing love for him and, uh, you know, kissing him under those circumstances, at which point he lies back. Light comes in, source of light, not sure. Hang on, so. Source of light comes from over there. Wait, no, and, 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 and the things light up. Ah, yeah, so the candles light up. Now, we've already seen that there's some kind of mystical significance of the candles. These candles were the candles that were running with blood during his blasphemous oath at the beginning, right? So all of the lights in the chapel spring to life here uh, after she has kissed him. There, in the presence of God, I understood at last how my love could release us all from the powers of darkness. I understood how my love could release us all from the power of darkness. Okay. So she holds the key through her love 
the the final fulfillment of the Elizabeth Dracula love relationship will bring about the releasing of the sort of the breaking the cycle of the powers of darkness here will release him from it and release her from it and everybody else from this curse right okay um so um now remember that's parallel with the book as well totally different context right no romantic edge or anything but you'll recall mina's own charity her own forgiveness towards Dracula was, as the men say, their own guiding star, right? They, it was her own uh, love and patience and humility and forbearance that was sort of the moral guide to them. Again, remember, this is kind of the irony that, um, and it's one of the things that I find particular, myself, I find particularly lovely about the story, how um, Van Helsing and Dr. Seward totally screw up the Mina thing, right? You know, where they perceive that she is awesome and then they still push her aside and then they sort of reap the consequences of that. And we talked about that. Um, And yet the thing that Van Helsing says to her in the moment when Van Helsing is screwing up in the moment when he first says to Mina, you must no longer be of our councils, right? When, when he tells her they're going to leave her behind um, when, when they go over to Carfax that night in the moment he's in, he's blowing it. He says, you must be our, you know, our, our, our star, right? That she's going to be the one who sort of is, is, is the guide and the moral compass of them. He, when he says it, he doesn't mean much by it. That is, it's kind of like a, a console, like a thing that you say to make her feel like she's still involved, right? Um, uh, you know, the idea of you will still inspire us, Mina, even though we're excluding you, right? So you can feel good about that. And yet, um... Of course, she ends up being exactly that. It is, in fact, her own moral choices and her own uh, moral example, which is the guide and the the inspiration for all of them that keeps them going and keeps them sort of on the right path uh, through there in the end of the book. So, okay, um, that's that's and that seems to be what the film is kind of picking up on here. So, Mina's love. Is good, but of course, it's going to free them from the powers of darkness in a much more literal way, right? A much more direct way. Uh, and of course, her love is of a different quality. This is not the pure charity that is the generous and undeserved love or sort of yeah, love of even the monster that harmed her, right? Um, the you know the 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 sort of this pure loving of her enemy that we get from Mina in the book, um, this is of course the fulfillment, the ultimate sort of fruition of the love relationship between Elisabetta and Dracula, which of course we must remember is the love that drove him into darkness in the first place, right? Because of his love for her, he swore the blasphemous oath and got real upset, right? So, uh, it is it is the writing of that particular ship is coming from the same source, right? So within the economy of the, you know, of the film, that seems to work, right? That seems to make sense. Now, um, notice before we get the beauty and the beast thing, right? Um, here, Mina is saying at that point, she realized you'll notice this happens first, right? His own change 
is initiated as the wound in the cross heals itself miraculously. And of course, you'll remember that's where he drove his sword into the cross and where blood was gushing out right after he stabbed the cross. That sort of uh, that sort of re-crucifixion, right, that we get uh, in that opening scene. That, I take this to represent God's act of forgiveness, right? This is before anything has happened. All that's happened is she kissed him. Right, which is apparently significant, like in a Beauty and the Beast sense, but um, but uh, and while she's thinking about her love, you know, saving them from the powers of darkness, we get the miraculous healing of the re-crucified cross. Right, and again, I I take this to to represent. I understood at last forgiveness. how forgiveness could release us all from the powers of darkness. Remember, she began with, like, in the presence of God, right? So she's understanding it in that context. Again, bringing those two things together. Now, Beauty and the Beast. She's kissed him, and she loves him even when he's a beast, and so he... Our love is stronger than death. Your love is stronger than death. Another free Bible quote. For love is stronger than death. Song of Solomon. Gotta throw a little Song of Solomon in there, right? Uh... Uh, absolutely. Um, and see, the thing that I love, that's exactly like the kind of way that Bram Stoker would throw out a Bible quotation, right? Just, you know, just kind of work it in there without any fanfare, right? And they did the same thing. And that's not a, that's, Bram Stoker doesn't make that one, of course, right? Because he's not into the, uh, the whole Song of Solomon thing. He doesn't have the, the romantic, uh, uh, love angle. Um, so, okay, so so he, does this indicate, now he's returning to how he looked originally, right? So first he turns into Jesus. Oh, no, wait, I mean, he turns into the older Dracula and then he gets younger again like he was when he made the blasphemous oath in the first place, though he was bearded then, so I don't really get this exactly, but that's okay. Um Give me peace, he says. Okay, so that, that and peace, of course, was a really important concept in the book, right? That is the peace that came over his, even his face, um, where they would never have thought to see it, right? And, that, and that's in Mina's words at the end of the book. Um, here, she is the one who is directly giving him that peace by finishing him, and that uh, that death again, which Mina in the book was so insistent that the death that they bring to him should not be done in vengeance or seeking to punish him, right? As Jonathan so rashly says that if he could send his uh, soul to burning hell, Dracula's soul to burning hell, he would, right? Uh, and she's, you know, she's very adamant in speaking against that. No, even in in wanting to kill Dracula, we're not only they're not only saving her, Mina, and uh, and uh, preventing other victims. They're saving Dracula himself, right? They're they're uh, uh, they're having showing mercy on him. That mercy is certainly being exaggerated here in this scene, right? Emphasized even more. Um, but hang on a second. What about the crucifixion thing? We're kind of losing track of that. We got to make so. Uh, how does that fit in? That that once she kissed him, 
the attention shifts to her love, right? Um, so she loves and accepts him and is sort of... I was going to say reconciled with him, but that's not quite the right word. Um, you know, there's this... Uh, we get this return to their love. The forgiveness... I'm still, I'm still trying to wrap my head around how, the, how exactly her love is going to bring about, going to free them all from the powers of darkness. Um, uh, okay, right? So she frees herself through her own action in finishing him right and bringing him peace he's hmm okay she heals herself as well or rather that's the sign of her own reconciliation with god right she's not unclean anymore she does use that that word though well that's a whole other issue that scene but um and then do, do you follow his eyes he's looking at her here he's looking at her and what does he see with his dying eyes he sees the mark on her forehead vanish you see you see see just like just like just like Quincy Veronica. Exactly. So Quincy Morris dies, right? But he dies kind of meaninglessly in the film. His role is taken by Dracula himself as Dracula with his own dying eyes looks upon Mina's forehead and sees, you know, it's almost like he could be like, look, it was worth for this to die, right? Um, he sees Mina's own cleansing with his dying eyes. And, rec and again, this seems to be part of the reconciliation thing. I'm getting reconciliation here, right? You can tell me if you think I'm crazy, but I'm getting reconciliation here. Reconciliation between him and God, between the healing of the cross, right? And now Mina is reconciled, right? But now watch, 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 watch his eyes. He's looking at Mina, and he's looking at this, the, her, her, her non-stained forehead. And then, now where's he looking? Not nowhere, I don't think. And his eyes are shining like Bella Lugosi's. Where's he looking? The dome! Yes! The dome, the ceiling, is where he's looking. So he looks at her, and he looks up at the picture of himself and, and uh, uh, Elisabetta, right? And the glow, right, that golden glow seems to be the glow of the candles from the ceiling, though again, it's very, it's very, it's very Bella right there. And then, he's not dead yet. Huh? Then? Yes, Sarah, exactly, the cross. He's looking up at the cross above him here. And that's when he dies. He dies looking up at the cross. And then she kisses him again. 
which again I take to be almost a book reference, right? She kisses his dead lips, exactly the words of Van Helsing, to Arthur, right? After Lucy has been staked and they're seeing the peace on her face, right? And she looks like herself again and she is at rest and he's, and, and, um, and Van Helsing offers to Arthur that he could kiss her dead lips uh, if, uh, if he would like. Um, and that seems to be that, that same kind of kiss, like to, this, is a, this is a farewell kiss, right? Um, after he has departed. She walks up into the ceiling. And the glow as if from behind it I'm thinking Yeah. Her eyes are open, right? She's totally alive in that picture. So it looks just like before. There. Except, of course, I'm sorry, right there. Except this is dull and dim, right? You can barely make it out. Here, we've got the light. The light from the candles, right? The candles which have spontaneously and miraculously... Uh, uh, lit, right? And Tom, yes, Tom says that the pulling back, the camera's pulling back here, um, now makes it look like they're rising. Yes. Uh, they could have been falling before. Yeah, so Veronica, the, the sense does seem to be Dracula and Elisabetta reunited in heaven. That does seem to be the sense of it, I, I guess. Um, very angelic music, Veronica. I agree, Philip. The tenderness of that moment seems to be slightly slightly undercut by the sudden and violent decapitation. But, you know, um, uh, <laughs> I, I have no idea. The decapitation I don't know what to do with. Um, it seems, then, that this that the film does want us to understand um, it ends on a note which is in its way similar to the note that the book ended on, again, with the final emphasis concerning Dracula being on his uh, the peace on his face, right, um, before his final dissolution. He does not, of course, in the film, drop into, uh, uh, drop into to, to dust. Um, but, um, uh, <sighs> Anyway, that 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 f- the the film seem- it does a great deal more with that. So okay, so back to the crucifixion business. Then the, it is finished, and the uh, my God, why have you abandoned me? Uh, thing, the the Dracula Jesus parallel. I'm I'm going to go with because see the thing is, it's tempting. Um, 
it's tempting to say um, that that's kind of a, a blasphemous parallel, right? Um, but I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think it's him putting himself in Jesus's place. I don't think it's the film putting him in Jesus's place. It's clearly about his relationship with Jesus, right? His his um, his reconciliation with Jesus. If anything, I guess I think how I would um, I think how I would understand that is basically to use the New Testament language. What we're see what we were seeing there at the beginning was sort of Dracula taking up his cross and following Jesus. That he was he was dying like Jesus died. Um, he was even paralleling, in a sense, his own death to Jesus's death. But that was part of the reconciliation process. Um, the distance that he had opened between himself and God very violently between himself and God at the beginning of the film is closed at the end. And that parallel between Dracula and Jesus seems to be a major part of the mechanism of that, um, of that closing at Tom was just thinking of the taking up his cross, uh, thing too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating, uh, end of it. I mean, as I, as I said, um, uh, as I said at the beginning of talking about that film, I, uh, you know, I had been complaining that the spiritual themes were not really properly being taken up or really thought through. Can't say that about, can't make that complaint about this film. Um, they are certainly <laughs> thinking through the spiritual stuff uh, in way, not exactly, of course, in the same way uh, that the book was. But at the end of the day, I don't think utterly opposed to it either. Um, I don't feel that the film ultimately pushes things in a totally different direction at the end here. Um, but, uh, yeah, I know several of you are teasing me for the fact that we're halfway through the class and I'm still on the first film and I haven't gotten to the second film or the conclusions. You'll see. You will totally see. Um, uh, anyway, um, uh, Let's look at Dracula 2000 briefly. Again, I, I, I have uh, almost no scenes that I want to talk about with there. I'll, I'll make a few general comments. So this is how I'm, I'm, I'm saving myself time is instead of having 20, what, what, what was this? 24 uh, scenes from the film that I want to look at. I only have three actually. So see, it's going to be simple. Um, all right. So I, um, first of all, the cast, right? I laughed and laughed and let la Remember how I was making those comments? I promise I was not setting this up. I literally had for uh, completely forgotten. Remember when I was saying in the horror of Dracula how, like, v Peter Cushing as Van Helsing? I was like, doesn't he look like Captain Von Trapp? I just keep thinking of Captain Von Trapp. And then, and then Captain Von Trapp literally plays Van Helsing in Dracula 2000. Oh, man. I just laughed and laughed and laughed. Um... Yeah, that was actually, in fact, uh, the guy, Greg, Christopher Plummer, who played Captain Von Trapp. I couldn't even believe I, in fact, got like the fulfillment of my uh, of, of my bizarrely uttered wish to see Captain Von Trapp as Van Helsing. Um, so, um, OK, 
And like Nathan Fillion, right? Anyone else really surprised to see Nathan Fillion suddenly popping up as the as the priest? I thought that was I thought that was cool. Anyway, okay, um, yes, and the American Sherlock uh, guy is in it too. Sorry, it's 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 actually a, a, a very interesting cast in some ways. Okay, um, this film. I'm not making any claims that this film is a good film. I think that this film is interesting in its engagement with the story, which is what I was interested in and why I wanted to talk about it, especially in the context of the other films that we've seen. Um, and uh, uh, but of course, the position that this film occupies is deliberately a very different position, right? Um, and that I think is is. It's another reason why I wanted to talk about this film, because so far the the, the three other films that we four other films that we've looked at have been in their way, um, have been in their way straight adaptations, right? Uh, they've been uh, you know just we're gonna do the story of Dracula. This film is doing sort of two different things at the same time, right? On the one hand, it's like almost like a sequel, right? Like a continuation. It's it's generations down the road. It refers to the book, right? So the book exists within the world of the film. It's not just a retelling of the book story. Um, we're told at the beginning, you know, that this is Van Helsing's grandson. Of course, it turns out not to be Van Helsing's grandson. But um, but again, this is like the continuation of the story in previous generations with some sort of assumption on our part that something vaguely like the actual events of Bram Stoker's book actually took place um, previously. Um, uh, so again, so, so in, in one sense, it's a continuation like a sequel, and yet it's also at the same time like a modernization, that is to say, like an adaptation of a story which transplants the story into a different time and setting, as of course you often see in adaptations and often in very interesting adaptations, whether it be something like, you know, a Shakespeare film, which is done in like a, a, you know, a a very different cultural context, or whether it be like a number of of other interesting uh, modern films, which have taken the modernization approach uh, to um, uh, to adaptation. One of the uh, Sherlock being one example, Philip, yeah, the, the uh, BBC Sherlock uh, is is one good illustration of that. Or whether you go even further uh, to something like um, uh, Clueless, the wonderful ad- adaptation of Emma, uh, uh, Jane Austen's Emma, that was done... Clueless is, I think, one of the one of the one of the best examples of this. I I I, I very much admire that movie and its relationship with uh, with Jane Austen's Emma. Um, uh, there's um, there's there, I mean I'm sure you can uh, you can you can think of other examples uh, of um, of this of this kind of thing. So it's doing that kind of thing on the one hand, right? Taking the Dracula story, reworking it, putting it into a completely different context in a different time period. But it's still, I mean, you can see it's still working out a very similar story, right? We still get even lots of the individual details, right? Like him coming across to the lands, not to England this time, it's to New Orleans, right? But uh, him coming across to, um, uh, to New Orleans aboard a ship where everybody is dead, right? And the captain tied to the chair. Um, we've got the, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, deep, you know, Van Helsing instructing his younger skeptical pupil and uh, like the Lucy thing, right? You know, get, uh, you know, there's the Mina figure, though she's not named Mina, which we'll talk about later. And Lucy, um, you know, her friend Lucy, who is, of course, Dracula's earlier victim. Um, there's even the, um, uh, uh, Arthur liked uh, 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 Jerry Ryan's 
assimilation into the vampire army like she was in Star Trek. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The woman who played the reporter woman who is assimilated becomes one of the three vampire women uh, in uh, there in New Orleans. Yeah, yeah. She's she's from Star Trek. Anyway, so um, uh, there's there's I even like the fact that why it why it was that he connected with Lucy Dracula picks Lucy out right because of that moment when Mary was having that vision of him and she stepped she Lucy rushing over to Mary and not being able to see the vision of course that Mary was having stepped into the physical space occupied by like the vision wraith of Dracula and he somehow could sort of perceive that connection between himself and Lucy that like because like she had been basically standing in the wrong spot just like Lucy in the book standing on the grave um anyway I I, I thought it, I, it was cool it was cool um but uh um so okay all right um now what's this film interested in well this film is interested in a lot of things and again let me Tell you an event. Several of you are complaining that this was a bad movie. Yeah, I totally agree it's a bad movie. I don't care if it's a bad movie. This is me, right? And this is the same thing with... I I, I, I like to think about these things. I find lots of interesting and thoughtful things going on here. There are lots of things that I find really bad uh, about this film. But I don't care about those things. Um, uh, and to me, like, if there's, like, enough meaty things to think about, I am totally willing to overlook uh, just, uh, just, just the oceans of badness. Um, uh, so I, I'm not bothered. Um, let's, so what do we get of the, uh, uh, of the, of the, of the vampire in this film, right? From the very opening scenes, we the film insists on a very strong connection between the vampire and basic animal nature. We get this from the very st- in those opening scenes, the ones which take place in 1897, establishing the parallel between the older story and the newer story. Um, there's the emphasis on his transformation into wolf form, even you know that that sort of uh, gradual change that we see happening from wolf to human, actually, um, in the with the footprints in the sand after he gets off the ship. Again, the, the, the actual Demeter in 1897. Um, even the emphasis with the rats on the ship crawling on the corpses and things, right? We got, um, um, again, that, the, I think, that same emphasis on, uh, like, the, the, the sort of the, the bestial nature. Similarly, of course, we also get um, throughout this very dominant association between vampirism and sexuality, right? The, the impact that he has, the, 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 the willpower of Dracula, his ability to hypnotize or or mesmerize, um, or, you know, just sort of dominate the wills of others, as we saw in the Bela Lugosi version, um, uh, that was, they're dominantly emphasized in that version of the film. And as we've seen elsewhere, and of course, also in the book, um, this is, transmuted in this film simply to sex appeal. Again, it's connected to sexual desire explicitly. Um, which, again, in the context of, like, the, the sort of whole bestial nature thing, seemed to me to, uh, to, to, to sort of work, to sort of fit. I, I find it 
really limiting. I mean, compared to the book and the, the, the much more interesting and kind of subtle things that the book was doing about that whole perversion and inversion of, 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 of sacred loves of lots of different kinds, not just of, of, of the sexual relationship, but the sexual relationship and also the maternal relationship and all these other things that we were looking at. And of course the Christian spiritual stuff. But of course, this film is not lacking uh, in contemplation of the the Christian thing as well. Um, now, so note, one thing that we see established in this film is that absolute uh, sort of repugnance for Christian artifacts is characteristic of Dracula, but not of vampires. It's not a vampire thing, exactly, right? Um, you know, there's even, there's that, there's the, stupid joke that uh and i forget his name in the film the omar epps character um uh when he's a vampire and and uh um simon holds the the cross out in front of him and he and he says and he jokes about yes he says i'm sorry i'm an atheist right um and he does now again it's it's a joke it's a stupid joke but it's a telling joke right It, it suggests within the world of this film um that, you know, holy symbols are not the kind of anathema to vampires as a whole that they were, that they are in the book, um, that we've seen, that we saw in the horror of Dracula, uh, that we saw in, in, uh, in, in Coppola's Dracula, um, as we saw in the Bela Lugosi Dracula, right? Really everywhere except for Nosferatu, we have seen the, the sort of the return of the crucifix as the biggest um, anti-vampire tool or weapon, right? Um, and it does not occupy that place in this film, right? It's not, it's not, again, it's, it's not automatic. Um, we're also told soon after this, Van Helsing reveals in his, uh, you know, like, uh, sort of teaching speech, right? To, uh, to, uh, to Simon, his understudy, right? The sort of the parallel to, uh, to Dr. Seward in, in, in that way. Um, tells him that Dracula shows not fear of holy items and they don't seem to damage him. They just really tick him off, right? He gets, they drive him into a rage. He seems to hate God. He shows hatred of God. Um, and, uh, and then we get the, uh, the Aramaic inscription. I love how Mary like can remember somehow she just like understands like it is like born up into her mind. It's like her blood, presumably that enables her to like, uh, interpret Aramaic. I love that. Um, um, I think this is another reason why I don't get as bothered by bad movies as some people do. I just doesn't seem to bother me nearly as much as it bothers some people, mostly just because I always just find it hilarious. Uh, anyway, I don't know. So, um, it's just entertaining in a different way for me. Um, but yeah, Nancy, I wish language worked like that too. But anyway, okay, but, but, the, but the point is the Aramaic inscription, right, is talking about the way to eternity, right? So we're clearly, although, and, and, and to me, this is a really interesting turning point in the film, that actually that Aramaic inscription is to me a really interesting turning point in the film. Because again, before that, it seemed like they were going to... I mean, I remember when I saw this film in the theaters for the first time in the year 2000, um, which, by the way, so 1992, I saw, I saw both of the last two films in the theaters. Um, when I saw Coppola's Dracula in the theater, I had only read Dracula once in high school. I... I hadn't really, I, I, I wasn't really interested in it yet, 
by the year 2000, when Dracula 2000 came about, I had already had my like moment when I rediscovered Dracula and it became one of my favorite books. So I had read Bram Stoker's Dracula maybe like 25 times in between 1992 and the year 2000 when I saw this film. So I was much more sensitive to these things uh, when I, um, when I saw uh, the, when I saw this film than I was when I saw the Coppola film. Um, And so I was disappointed, right? I was disappointed in the sex thing. That is like, it just, it seemed like they were making it so simplistic, Right. Like, oh, so really like vampirism is just going to be about sex. Um, it's just going to be about sexual desire. I mean, I, I was so I was all ready to condemn. Right. I, I was uh, um, I, I was uh, I was I was saddened by that move, which seems so simple and so obvious. Um, uh, and again, so kind of narrow minded in its way. But then it shifts. And again, I, I, you know, maybe you could point to other moments, uh, but that 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 Aramaic inscription was the one that really got me to say, wait a second, okay, no, although it has been, although the emphasis has been on this sort of base desire, um, primarily sexual desire, but but certainly that kind of base desire. Um, no, now there's something there's there's something else. Now they're talking about not just like power or uh, or or sort of um, you know, indulgence, but they're talking about eternity, right? Um, and that's interesting, right? And then, of course, we finally get the big reveal, right? So let's let's uh, let's look at the big reveal. I remember, and I saw this in the theater. I laughed and laughed and laughed. Um, this is lovely, right? Absolutely lovely. Um, Karita, I yeah, I think the whole hatred of silver thing was rather was rather uh, was rather clever as well. Um, okay, so um, so yeah, see, Gerald, doesn't matter how many pieces of silver those uh, those big uh, silver bullets are. And I was confused at the beginning of the film too. I'm like, why? Because remember, Van Helsing has that moment where he emphasizes, like with the crossbow, it's really heavy because it's designed to shoot metal instead of wood. And I'm like, well, why is it? Why is it metal? Right? Um, why? Uh, I I don't I don't um, 
I, I didn't get the significance of that. Like, I don't remember anything about metal. And then it, it kept coming back around to silver. And at first, I th- again, I thought this was mere confusion, right? Like, oh, no, that's werewolves, actually. The silver thing is werewolves. That's not vampires, right? But, um, but no, no, actually, it's, I mean, there's still some confusion there. But the way that they work that in, I'm like, okay, all right. And then we get the Judas Iscariot thing. Hilarious, right? But... Interesting. Inter- I mean, again, it's it's I, I this whole film is so badly done and so hokey. Um, but um, um, but yeah, you're right, Michael. It's not the only modern vampire film to bring in the silver stuff. Um, uh, you're right. Blade uh, uh, does the silver thing as well. Um, but um, yeah, Sarah, I don't I um, that's a good theory. Sarah's wondering why silver is supposed to be effective on werewolves in the first place. That's traditional, of course. Um uh, uh, but it's um, I. Uh, it is. It is as Mick was just saying, and as Sarah was suggesting, it is the metal of the moon. Um, everyone knows uh, this is an old idea, a medieval idea, that each of the planets has a metal that's associated with it, and met- and silver is the metal that's associated with the moon. So I, I, I do think, uh, Sarah and Mick both, that that's the connection with werewolves originally. Um, but, um, anyway, okay. Um, uh, so, okay. So they're, they go again. The, the, so this film takes this like about turn, right? Where it shifts from the vampirism thing is really just about like getting in touch with your base desires, right? That being a vampire seems to be associated with complete physical inhibition, or lack of physical inhibition, right? Um, both in terms of sexual manifestation, which is the most obvious and, and often repeated one, um, but also of things like appetite and even of, of, of physical movement, right? They're like completely, completely unrestrained. Um, okay, so... Um, all right. So they connect him back to Judas Iscariot. They make the explanation, this is where the vampire came from. Now, remember, this is something that... uh, One of the things that chiefly interests me here is that both of these two modern films, both the Coppola one and Dracula 2000, are asking the question that the original story doesn't really ask, or at least doesn't really insist upon. That is... Where did this start? How did this start? Right? Why? I mean, there's, there's, the book talks about it, right? But it's very vague and it's very unclear. I mean, because nothing is really known for sure, right? But we're not given the backstory of, okay, so assuming the, the, the book seems to suggest that this is, uh, you know, this is some kind of, this is some, some kind of demonic intervention, right? That this is, you know, the, the vampirism is a satanic manifestation. Um, uh, but like, how, how did this guy, uh, get connected with that? Right. Um, how did, how did, how did they get connected with that? How did, um, um, how did it start? Right. The book addresses it very briefly, but the book isn't really interested in this question. Right. Um, it kind of raises it, but then just sets the question aside. It's not really a question that the book is focused on both of the two modern and neither of the and none of the other modern films 
bring it up at all, right? I mean, Dracula is just a pre-existing condition in all three of the uh, of the early films that we that we were looking at. In these last two films, though, both of these last two films take as their as their center point some kind of myth of origin, right? Um, we get the elaborate story, uh, you know, the, the, the story of Dracula and Elisabetta and, and his blasphemous oath in the Coppola version, we go back further to say, oh no, like, you know, it's actually uh, Judas Iscariot himself. It's, it's, it's the, uh, the sort of curse that's been placed upon them, right? Um, uh, by God, right? They've been both condemned by God because both of them sinned against God. Both of them rebelled against God. Um, and, okay, that's um, that's interesting, right? Um, so, yeah, exactly, Margaret. You don't even have to obey the laws of gravity as a vampire. Absolutely right, right? Um, though, again, that's also kind of, we see that in 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 Coppola's Dracula too, as we as I mentioned briefly, Coppola's Dracula seems to have almost not unlimited powers, but all kinds of different powers. Very uh, his 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 abilities are much less narrow, are, are much less carefully circumscribed than they are in the book. Um, yeah, yeah. Margaret is thinking maybe we get these because everyone now knows the rules of vampirism. So where it came from is the is the only mystery left, right? Whereas Stoker was more content just to be like, "Hey, what is this thing? And what the heck is going on? And what could we possibly do about it?" That's enough mystery to be going on with, right? For Bram Stoker, maybe that seems that seems plausible. Um, I can't help but notice a. Um, I can't help but notice. Another coincidence, though, right? That is, the two of these films that we have looked at that have been that have come around at least to being most interested in the Christian themes that dominate Bram Stoker's Dracula are the two that are focused on the origin story, right? And they both of them link that origin story very directly. <clears throat> back, they anchor it in those in the Christian themes and images and ideas uh, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, and that I, I, I that's interesting. I find that uh, I find that I find that very interesting. Um, okay, all right. Let's. Uh, but then, because uh, so what now? Uh, Tomas asks a good question. Um, uh, you know, so they explain the crucifix and the silver, but not the blood sucking. Um, yeah, it's true. It's true. His hatred for God, uh, you know, why he's mad at God and why he seems to despise Christian things and uh, why he uh, silver bothers him and the sunlight, too, uh, um, uh, Tomas. That's also explained because they get this that 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 visual image of Judas hanging himself at sunset right and as as the sun goes down and never again was he able to see you know was he able to see the sun again that's also um that's also kind of uh kind of interesting but okay here what's uh this is the fullest explanation of his point of view from Dracula himself here this is immediately after that last reveal destiny to betray you. 
You knew all this would come to pass, he's saying. He's having a little heart-to-heart with the, uh, with the ludicrous painting of Jesus, right? It was my destiny to betray you. Because you hated me. Very old argument, right? Judas is justified because his betrayal was necessary, and therefore he was performing... A, uh, 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 a a necessary function, right? Something addressed, of course, in the New Testament, um, you know. But uh, woe unto him by whom the offense cometh. But anyway, um, destiny, of course, is the word that he used here, which is important, right? Um, yeah, and yet remain evil, as uh, Tom says. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, and Tony, they do acknowledge the blood is the life thing. Um, uh, he uses that phrase, not the, he doesn't say the blood is the life, um, but he talks about that in conjunction with Mary, right? That his life was conveyed through his blood to Van Helsing and through Van Helsing to his daughter, right? The like metaphysics of this are super squishy, but that's okay. Uh, um, so Tony, they, they, he does establish that. He does establish that. Um, Maybe my relationship with bad movies is also a consequence of my reading student essays for many, many years. I've read so many thousands of student essays, and I've spent so much of my life saying something along the lines of, your ideas are kind of confused, and it's not really clear how you're expressing it, but I really think there's a good idea in there. Let me focus on that, right? Maybe that's what's trained me to approach movies <laughs> that way. I don't really know. Uh, but anyway, okay, okay. Um, uh... Now, I drink the blood. I give them more than just eternal life. I give them what they crave most. All the pleasure you deny them. So you see how at the end, they're trying to fold the things in together. Now, it's not working very well. The Coppola movie is like hundred times the movie that this one is. And the way that, that the Coppola film is able to bring the love story and the spiritual stuff together there in the end is quite brilliant. Um, this is not brilliantly done. But you can see, again, just as so through the first part of this film, the emphasis was on pleasure, that kind of base pleasure, right? The satisfaction of base desires. And that's what was associated with vampirism. That's how we're introduced to vampirism throughout the beginning of the film. Then we shift to this whole eternity thing, right? Um, and, you know, I give them eternity, I give them eternal life. That the, the thing in Aramaic is like the way to eternal life, right? So it's like holding out a promise of eternal life uh, to Mary in, uh, in offering her you know, vampirism and ultimately the fulfillment of her own personal destiny because of her connection with him. Um, okay. And here we see the film trying to bring those two things together at the end, right? So he offers them, he drinks them, so he's acknowledging the whole reversal thing. They're, 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 they're doing, um, they're doing the parallel that the book does to an extent, right? That is the, the whole, 
vampirism as warped eternity given by the taking of blood instead of the giving of blood, right? So that the, the, the fact that Dracula is here explicitly saying, and Tomas, this is my answer to your question, wh- where do you get the blood drinking from in the whole, through with the whole Judas Iscariot thing? As a parody, uh, you know, it's like a cursed parody of of Christianity itself. So in this moment, when Jesus is dying on the cross and, you know, Christianity is being born, here's Judas hanging himself from the tree. So we get the parallel of the, the, the cross with Jesus and the tree with Judas and moving in different directions, but but still kind of connected to each other, right, through the blood, right, through the whole drinking of blood as, a, as, as the vehicle, right, for eternity. So he's point, but he's he's he delights in the fact, as we see, he he delights in the fact that he is feeding upon God's children, right? And instead of bringing them salvation, he's he's corrupting them, but he's giving them eternity, and he's giving them more. Like their 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 eternity is uh, is like a more upgrade, right? Um, uh, because uh, it's that he gives them pleasure, right? He satisfies their desires, as we saw at the beginning of the film. So ultimately, it's not just that he's doing this out of spite, like I'm destroying all of these humans in order to just spit in the face of Jesus, like there's that, apparently. But but at the same time, kind of uh, confl- in, in somewhat in conflict to that idea, um, not just I'm going to destroy these things because you care about them and you died to save them all, so I'm going to destroy them just to just to get back at you. There seems to be that element, but then there's also what I offer them is actually better, right? And given a choice between my eternity and your eternity, they would choose my eternity. As indeed we see the vampires, the humans who become vampires um, in the film are no end pleased with it, in fact, right? That, that, that seems to be, he seems to have kind of an argument there, right? The thieves who were trying to find treasure, who expected to find treasure and in the end only found the casket of Dracula, um, do say that, express that sentiment, right? That uh, um, they, you know, that what they actually found was way better than gold or whatever else um, they could have found. Um, so, okay, so he's 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 one-upping Jesus at the same time as he's undermining Jesus. And I'm not sure that the confusion of those two ideas, that is the way that they seem to be working in opposite directions, like, which is it, Dracula? Are you destroying these creatures, that is the human beings, or are you giving them a, an enormous blessing? Which one is it, Right. That conflict seems to me, of course, it's possible that it's merely a confusion in the mind of the of the filmmakers. That's hardly difficult to believe under the circumstances. But yet I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that isn't actually like a conflict or a confusion in the mind of of Judas Dracula here Um, and uh, uh, an indication of his own kind of division and uh, and and as I say, sort of confusion. Um, But then. Where do we end up? Right? What? Oh, sorry. We haven't finished this. Let's keep going. Forever. Yeah. Pleasure forever. Yeah. <laughs> you make the world in your image. Now, here it comes. Here comes 
the best cinematographic moment in this entire film, from my perspective. My own opinion on that. Here it is. Here's a good moment. Come, Mary. That's good. The, the, I love the rotation of the camera, his gesture. You can just see the glowing cross in the background as he's turning his back on it, reaching out his hand and saying, and I love Butler's voice here. Come, Mary. Come, Mary. Um, that's really good, right? The turning and that appeal to her as, again, now this whole sort of love story is being connected. And I will come back to the love-ish story thing uh, that's also going on in a second. One more, though, because, of course, where we... Well, no, let's hang on to that. Okay. Um, let's let's turn instead to the, to the love to the love thing. Um, so we have the Mina figure again. On the one hand, this seems to be playing off of the Coppola story, right? Now that Coppola has made this whole destined beyond the grave, I have crossed oceans of time to find you romance thing into the Dracula story. Um, now it's a thing, right? And this film seems to be kind of doing something similar. We have this sort of destined relationship between the Mina figure, who is named Mary instead of Mina, and Dracula. Um, so this is, of course, a trend that we see, right? This this uh, shift towards making Dracula into a love story, of which there was no whiff in the earlier films. But there's a difference here. That, well, there's lots of differences. But one major difference here. Why is he searching for her? What's the point? Why does... Why, this is not, you know, his former bride who died and... Um, why is he connected to her? How, why? Are, in what sense are they destined to be together? What's going on there? Yeah. In the story, what we're getting here is her... Good, Veronica says she is literally blood of his blood and flesh of his flesh, right? Yes, yes. Um, and this... I I mean, the whole mechanism of this, I find, like, it doesn't bear scrutiny at all. Um, but, um, but anyway, I'm... I am asked to accept the idea that she is connected with him through her blood. So Dracula's blood has infected Van Helsing and that sort of spiritual legacy of this connection with Dracula has been passed off to his daughter and that's Mary and that's who she is. And when her mother, Van Helsing's wife, discovered this, uh, she, the mother, took Mary away to New Orleans and uh, there were, I guess, to Canada and ran around in Scotland and Canada and then New Orleans, I guess, um, and uh, has been on the run and has never seen Van Helsing again. So, okay. Um, so she is... Um, um, she's connected to him. That's where the destiny thing comes from, right? So, but she's not like a daughter, right? There's still a, there's still a sex thing, 
right? There's still a, this is still a romantic relationship here, right? This is still an erotic relationship, that is to say. Um, but remember the phrase that Dracula uses, which is an interesting line, is he says he's, he's been searching for a soul which is bitten, not, which is not bitten, but born, right? Um, that is what he seems to suggest he has been looking for and is, fi- and is finding in Mary the sense in which she is destined for him is that she is his destined partner, mate, right? Equal. She is his equal in some sense because she is, uh, um, uh, you know, as you were saying, Veronica, blood of his blood, right? Um, she is his equal in a way that uh, uh, that none of the other, you know, brides that he sort of makes, you know, the vampire women, um, are his equal. They are only his servants, I guess, or whatever. But um, but it's different. We still get, I mean, when he bites her and then he opens his throat, kind of dangerous. I mean, you want to be careful with that. I guess if you're immortal, it's not such a big deal. But he opens his throat so that, and she she drinks the blood from his throat. It's still explicitly, they still go through the explicit wedding rite thing, the blood of my blood and flesh of my flesh thing. Um, so she joins herself to him, but again, then we get this come Mary scene. Now the, um, the change of the name to Mary, several of you have been asking about the biblical Marys. Um, yeah, yeah, I definitely think that this is supposed to be the reason her name is changed from Mina that, you know, there so many of the rest of the, okay, not so many of Lucy is the primary one, the book names, uh, and roles coming back that, uh, um, you know, if she, her being named Mina would not be a huge surprise. Um, the shift from Mina to Mary, so we still have a, you know, a bisyllabic M name, um, but that very significant, very conspicuous shift uh, to the much, much more biblical name, Mary, um, is, uh, does seem to be important with the, and, and there, you know, the, the, this moment, the come Mary moment is the one where the significance of her name, Mary, uh, really resonates the, um, uh, the moment that this makes the the specifically the biblical moment that this uh, oh yeah yeah Karina the whole virgin T shirt I laughed out loud there too yeah Mary wakes up and she's wearing a, a big a big shirt that says virgin on it yeah yeah uh, uh, glad to see you didn't miss that really subtle moment there Karina right it, that's uh, it's pretty uh, it's pretty it's pretty hilarious um, but anyway um, in this moment when he reaches out his hand and calls to her. Um, really reminded me of uh, of uh, Mary Magdalene at the resurrection when she sees Jesus and he calls her by name, but says, don't touch me, actually. Um, so again, we have sort of a reversal of that, um, as this is pretty much the opposite of what, as she comes up and smooches him. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, see, Sarah Lagarde is uh, thinking this is a you know a Virgin Records product placement. You know, Sarah, I'm not sure it mightn't have gone the other direction uh, here. Um, that um, because I like, get the whole Virgin Mary thing is so. I mean, I think uh, 
uh, yeah, I'm wondering if they had to go to Virgin to get their permission to use their store, right, as uh, Mina's workplace, and thus her having that T-shirt. Um, but uh, okay, so, but then of course you remember what happens. What happens at the end? Let's look at the. Let's look at our final our final scene here. So she turns out only pretends to go along with him, but in truth, her will has remained resolute and she's not gone over to him and she she defies him to the end. Now notice he's holding her, right? She's not clinging to him as one might think that she would be. That is just in order to save herself the fall. He is holding onto her hand uh, of his own uh, of his own will here, right? Which is important, I think, in this. Uh, you'd think if you were actually hanging from this, that that cord would be digging into the. Uh, soft tissue of his throat a little bit more than it currently is here. This is not a, a very convincing strangulation, uh, but that's okay. Um, uh, Philip is saying Simon is in Simon Peter. Yeah, exactly. Simon, he's given a biblical name there as well. But anyway, okay, so yes, Arthur, exactly. Instead of so, instead of getting Judas hanging from a tree, we get he's now hanging from a cross. So you, you see visually what they've done. Again, not super effectively, not enormously evocatively uh, visually, but nevertheless, what they've done is they've taken those two parallel images that they paralleled in the Judas flashback there, right? Judas hanging from the tree and Jesus on the cross, and they've combined them, right? So now we have Judas hanging from the cross, right? Um, and, but Tom, exactly, the cross is a tree. That's the, the, the significance of that parallel. That word tree is used of the cross uh, many, many times in Christian tradition. You know, talk about Jesus being on the tree. Um, so, uh, so absolutely. This is, um, so bringing that, so this is in this way, as Mary seemed to sort of imply, though, I'm not sure that the symbolism was entirely the main point she was going for, but um, this is like the completion in a sense. So again, we have kind of the bringing together of things here at the end in this. Well, is there a redemptive mode here? He's looking up at Jesus, who, though the rest of it is uh, all broken, is still looking down. The uh, <clears throat> smarming, smarmy, ill-painted Jesus still is is not is not enormously attractive. But we have him looking up into the face of Jesus on the cross, right? And he's still hanging on to Mary. She's slipping, but he's not letting her go. I mean, he could just do that. Yeah, Arthur, I, that does seem to me somewhat redemptive, his apparent desire to attempt to save Mary. I think she'd have hit her head a little bit harder. But, you know. She's still a vampire at this point, so... 
Maybe they'd bounce. Why couldn't she just defy gravity? But anyway, okay, so she got the vampire eyes. He's looking down at her. And he releases her. Looks back up at Jesus on the cross. Notice at the moment in which he's looking... So he's looking down at her here. Look at his eyes. His eyes are humanized. That whole bloodshot thing is a thing throughout the film, right? It's a trend that the vampires, when they're being vampiric, their eyes, their irises go all blood red, right? So you see just a hint of the red around his eyes, right? But he's looking down at her with human eyes, saying, I release you. And then he looks up at... Jesus, and we've got the, like, half vampire eyes here, still mostly human, but the red is more prominent, right? But he's in this kind of, like, halfway state. Yes, and Mick, yes, Dawn arrives over the top of three separate church spires. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, which strikes me as not improbable in New Orleans, actually. And then he catches fire. This is not quite as lovely as the Beauty and the Beast thing, of course, but, you know, you take what you can get. Although it might not be... She didn't get to, like, kiss his nasty face or anything. Um, she is looking up at him in pity... So we're getting like there's a there's an element of the reconciliation that, that this that we seem to be going for reconciliation, I think clearly between him and her right, as he releases her, and she is magically devamped at that point, and she then shows pity for him in his suffering, and. Uh, and then again, so that does the reconciliation extend? I think that, that it's not nearly as clear uh, in this film as it was um, at the end of the Coppola film. That is like with the, especially with that healing of the wound in the cross, right? That that forgiveness is in fact being offered in reconciliation uh, between God and Dracula is happening there at the end. Um, his looks up to Jesus and Jesus's painted look down back at him uh, is a little bit less um, clear, I think, with that. Um, um. <laughs> oh, Philip, can you believe I didn't think of that? I can't believe I didn't think of that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so Philip points out, he burns. Right? So he's burning, and all that's left is ash. She mentions the ash. We're going to get to the ash. Hang on a second, Phil. We'll get to the ash. Thank you, Simon. That was very helpful. Um, and uh, I'm glad to see, Simon, that her spine was not, in fact, injured from that fall. So uh, it's, 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 it's good. Um, 
But uh, Rachel, I, I, I agree. Rachel was saying that she kept waiting for Dracula actually to ask to be allowed to die, as Mary suggests, but we don't really get that unless it's supposed to be assumed. Yeah, Rachel, I was a little bit unclear on that, too. I mean, it's not like before she chucks him off the edge, he's like committed to the idea and wishing that he could die. Um, he still seems to be, you know, intent on winning uh, at that point. But in the end, he seems to accept it. I think, again, it's not super clear, but I think it's uh, it's... It's possible. It is finished, as it were. <laughs> right? <laughs> Long ago, Judas Iscariot tried to die for his sins. But he was denied. Today the rope did not break, and he was burned in the first light of dawn. I take this to indicate some kind of reconciliation with God. That is, Mary's implication here is that the breaking of the rope... Um, and the prevention of... His, you know, you know, and the whole cursing of him with vampirism... Um, was part of, the, you know, was, was, you know, obviously God's condemnation of Judas. And so therefore her implication, the fact that the rope did not break, that like he was allowed to go through with the whole hanging thing this time, um, uh, is an indication that God accepted that, that he, you know, he, he was, he was not denied death by God this time. I am now the keeper of what remains. If the soul of Dracula still flickers in his ashes, I will keep it forever contained. For the first time in my life, I know who I am and where my future lies. I am Mary Van Helsing. I am my father's daughter. And nothing can ever take that away. Mandatory sequel set up, Yana, yeah, I agree. It kind of seemed like that, too. Um, they never did do a sequel to this, did they? Or if they did, I missed it. Uh, and I'm kind of glad I don't want to know if there's a sequel to this. Um, but um, but and, and anyway, back to back to the wonderful point that Philip was making. So he's burned. He's burned to ash. Right. Did you did, what what the dawn is coming? The dawn of what day? What day is dawning? As 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 Dracula's burning to ash. Ash Wednesday! Cause it's Mardi Gras! Right? It's Mardi Gras. You can tell there's like the Mardi Gras sign, you know, that the right next to Mary's head, right, in that scene to remind you that it was Mardi Gras. And it's Ash Wednesday now. I mean, that's awesome. I, I can't believe Phil, I can't believe I never thought of that. That is uh that is fantastic. No, Yana, I absolutely refuse to believe that that's a coincidence. Again, we've got, it says Mardi Gras right next to her head as the day is, as the night is passing and the day is dawning. It is absolutely not an accident. Um, if it is, it's an absolutely brilliant one. Um, uh, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool, right? Um, so we have, we're entering into, we're entering into this, you know, sort of, I mean, are we supposed to, I mean, it kind of breaks down, right? That is, it's a really cool thing. But then as soon as you start saying, so what? It's like, yeah, um, well, uh, uh, um, 
okay, I don't know what to do with it. So are, are we entering into this, like, this period of Mary's life as, like, Mary Van Helsing taking up her father's... Is this, like some kind of Lenten connection in some ways is in what way is it supposed to be like Lent? I don't really know. Um, it doesn't really, doesn't really seem to work all that well, but that's hardly surprising in the context of this film. Okay. Anyway. All right. Um, so, um, Several of you are informing me that there was a straight-to-DVD sequel. I, I, I still don't want to know. <laughs> I don't. I'm, I have. A, I'm. I have almost no interest in seeing the sequel to this film. Um, but. Um, but anyway, that's. Uh, um, that's yeah. Tom Hillman is wondering if it might just sort of signify that the party's over, right? Well, Tom, thinking about that, that transition, right? The transit. The 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 emphasis on. Um, indulgence of uh, uh, base bestial desires, right? Associated with vampirism all the way through. And the obvious kind of overlap with Mardi Gras that we get throughout the film, right? I mean, that's why... It seems to be clearly why New Orleans, right? Um, Is that that whole atmosphere, that whole sort of... The whole sort of licentious atmosphere um, of, uh, of... of Mardi Gras, and I and I use that word deliberately. Licentious, meaning license is given for reveling in the pleasures of the flesh. Right, that's the point of Mardi Gras. That's kind of what's going on in Mardi Gras, um, and that's what vampirism was about, according to Dracula. Right, that's what vampirism was about. That he gives a license to this kind of thing. You can, you know, I, I give them the pleasure that you deny them. He says. Um, so. Yeah, so we're, but I mean, but again, it seems to me to be like, okay, no, now the positive resolution of this film is Ash Wednesday, right? That That's really what we've been striving for all along is to arrive at Ash Wednesday. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it doesn't seem to me to work all that well in the end, but it's still cool. I still have to give props for the coolness of the whole Ash thing. Um, anyway, okay, okay. Um, conclusions? Thoughts? What kinds of things were you guys interested in as we were looking through, thinking over all of these four different films that we've seen, um, and, you know, thinking about the book and their different relationships with the book, what are some things that really jump out at you? What are some, some conclusions that you would uh, draw or some sort of trends that you've noticed? I'll mention just a couple things, and then you guys can kind of jump in with, um, with things as I give you a chance to type here. Um, again, one, just to mention what I mentioned before, I find it interesting that as time went on, there was an increased, not a decreased emphasis on the Christian spiritual stuff. If you'd ask me, right, like, okay, so we've got these movies, you know, 20s, 30s, 50s, 90s, and the year 2000. Um, you know, is the uh, uh, is the fixation on... Christian spiritual themes going to increase or decrease as time goes on. I'd have gotten that one wrong, um, but of course it's 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 almost exactly inverted. Nosferatu, the earliest one, is the one which of all of these four adaptations shows absolutely no interest whatsoever in the spiritual side, the Christian side of the Dracula story, um, whereas these later ones are all about it, right? So that's just kind of interesting. Along with that is not only, as we talked about before, this increased interest in the origin story, and we kind of discussed that a little bit, um, but also an increased focus, hand-in-hand with, really, a part of 
the emphasis on the Christian spiritual elements of the story. Um, this focus on the redemption of Dracula himself. The redemption of Dracula becomes, in those later movies, the central point. We don't get that emphasis, right? Think about, you know, in Nosferatu, there's no question of the redemption of Dracula. He's just, he's just a malignant thing that needs to be destroyed, right? The Bela Lugosi version... There's no emphasis on any redemption of Dracula. You know, he's just getting staked by Van Helsing off... You know, we just hear his groans off screen, but there's no hint of even, like, the desirability of, you know, redeeming him or bringing him peace um, in any way. And then in the horror of Dracula, again, again, he's just an enemy who's being fought with and ultimately overcome. Um, The fact that we see him dying in torment, burning in the sunlight sort of piece by piece, right? First his uh first his foot and then his hands and then and then his you know and then his head. Um is um uh again it's 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 not about him achieving peace at all. Um so interesting. Interesting to me that you know that it's not and again I might have I'm you know I I might have thought just as you know, the last few decades have seen an increase in like dark fantasy, you know, uh, the, the sort of the heroicization of, of, of dark, uh, elements and the desire to, uh, you know, sort of take, take stories out of a, a more simple good versus evil story as, you know, like as so many people perceive Tolkien as being, um, that's a, a thing, right? That's a trend that we see, you can see in fantasy literature, for instance, these films, and I'm not saying there aren't any films that do it, um, but these films don't show that kind of interest in Dracula. That is, they don't show the interest in sort of making Dracula simply a hero for being evil, right? Um, this is not like um, neither one of these in the end, neither one of those two modern films gives a like sympathy with the devil kind of reading of Dracula. But both of them are interested in redeeming him, ultimately, Um it seems the Coppola version, uh, much more so, um, exactly the rise of the anti-hero Mick, but that's exactly what I might've expected again. I mean, if I had just kind of guessed, um, I might've guessed that, that we would see the rise of sort of Dracula as anti-hero. And again, I'm sure there are places where you can see that kind of thing, but I don't, we didn't get it here in these movies anyway. And that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good. What else? What else? What else are you guys interested? Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention. Okay, no, two, two, two other things. Um, the feminist angle, right? Um, Mina's role, so important, so striking in the book. And of course, we talked about that. And and I, and my sort of semi joke about uh, Bram Stoker's feminist reading. But you see what I mean? When you actually look at it in the context of these other more modern versions of the story, he still kind of looks like a feminist in comparison to most of them, actually. Um, you get some, like, stronger female characters not in the horror of Dracula. I think the female characters there are weakest. The Bela Lugosi version does not feature very strong female characters either. And I mean strong in the sense of um, having heroic qualities. Right. The strength of will. I mean, Mina's strength in the book is a combination both of her intellectual resources and of her resolute will and of her virtue. 
right? Those three things combine to make Mina into the strong and exemplary character um, that we get uh, in the book. Um, we we get a, a sort of a version of that in some of these other stories. Okay, we, we don't get any of that in Bela Lugosi. We don't get any of that in The Horror of Dracula. In Nosferatu and uh, in the two modern films, we get a little bit more, right? Um, I can't, I've been saying four films. We've been looking at five films, actually. Um, in Nosferatu, Nina at least does make the choice to do the self-sacrificial thing. She has to be both pure of heart and sufficiently resolute. Um, she is the strongest character, really, in Nosferatu, um, as Jonathan's an idiot and uh, Renfield goes crazy. Um, and, you know, the vampire is an evil predatory monster who's like the plague. Um, she's the one who makes up her mind to end the thing and she does it and she sacrifices her life. Um, we get resolution in Mina in the Coppola version, but there we see Mina kind of waffling. Ah, waffling, that's so unfair. Um, we certainly don't see Mina as sort of resolute she has that kind of insight at the end, right, of how her love can solve all the problems. Um, but it's kind of late coming to her. It's not like she's the woman with the plan, as she certainly is in the book. Um, Veronica says that she thinks that Mary in Dracula 2000 is in this way perhaps closest to the book. I, th- I could see that argument. I mean, I'd be open to that argument. But again, the big difference, none of these other characters, none of the female characters uh, in any of these films are famous for their brains, right? Um, the, Mary was a bit of an idiot throughout mo- most of the film. Um, now, she's a bit of an idiot in, like, a cliched horror movie kind of way. Um, you know, I mean, I found that, that... That was, for me, the most tiresome element of this, of Dracula 2000, was the whole, like, can we please stop with the enormously drawn-out suspense scenes and, like, Mary, you're not going to back through the door, are you? I mean, it was almost like horror movie cliches going on there. I know, it's Wes Craven, right? But but anyway, um, exactly, Rachel. We didn't get anybody who was, like, the problem solver um, that Mina is in the book. The way that Mina is not only the sort of the moral star, right, of of, of the men in the book, but also the intellectual lead. Um, uh, I, I, none of the films, I think, really, uh, really did justice to that. Though we get we get good Minas or Ninas or Marys in other places. Um, I still don't think any of them stack up to. And, and again, not just the fact that Mina's character is that way, but the fact that he draws attention to the fact that the men screw it up because of their gender-based stereotypes. Nobody else does that, right? Um, I'm telling you, Bram Stoker standing alone as um, as the uh, uh, as the, the the feminist revolutionary, so good. Um, the other thing, the other trend that I find really fascinating, you'll remember that it was in the horror of Dracula that Van Helsing becomes a professional vampire hunter, right? And not only a professional vampire hunter, but a lifelong, uh, um, you know, antagonist of Dracula. Um, that was the moment, you know, that was sort of that weird adjustment at the beginning of the horror of Dracula when we have to, 
when we when when it's revealed that Jonathan Harker in Transylvania is like a plant for this secret society of Dracula haters, right? Um, uh, who are, is like an initiate into what vampirism really is and is setting out to destroy him. And Van Helsing, of course, big a big part of that. Van Helsing in the Bela Lugosi version, in both Nosferatu and in the Bela Lugosi version, we have, in both of them were given a Van Helsing or a professor in Nosferatu, um, who is like already informed about vampires, right? He's already kind of a vampire expert in some sense. Um, but he's not like, I am dedicated to stamping out, you know, Dracula is my you know, natural born enemy and I am dedicated my entire career to stamping him out. That happens in the horror of Dracula. And that seems to be, um, that seems to be a stable thing after that. I mean, all three of the, of the, the, the later films had Van Helsing in that role. Um, and that's, that's interesting to me. Um, you know, maybe it's correlated, as we were talking about, about the whole origin story angle, right? That as the sort of the mystery about vampirism fades into the background, it's not enough to have Van Helsing just as like the clever, open minded chap who figures out the vampire thing. Right. Since that's not really a role that it's easy for a modern Van Helsing to play, since everybody knows about vampires, all somebody has to do is breathe the word vampires or say, hey, look, there are bite marks in her neck. And everybody in the audience is thinking vampires, so you're just going to make Van Helsing and everybody else look stupid if they are like, God, golly, I just can't figure it out. And then Van Helsing tumbles to it. Um, That's not going to work so well, so instead... But we still want Van Helsing to have this special niche, so they... I mean, it's it's not that it doesn't make some sense, but um, but yeah. Um, yeah, Mick uh, sort of saying it sort of speaks to the trope of the dusty academic who knows crazy stuff. Yeah, we certainly get that, uh, especially emphasis on the crazy element uh, in uh, in Coppola as well. But uh, what other things? What other things were you guys, were you guys interested in? Um, okay. Uh... Good. Giannis uh, is interested in how the, 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 the movies had to deal with the more general knowledge about the mythology of vampires on the part of the audience as time went on. Yeah, we're talking about uh, some of those things. Um, but yeah, how there was little to no knowledge in the first one uh, to the book itself existing in the, in the last year. Yeah, and Nosferatu, everyone's like, it's the plague, right? Nobody, literally nobody besides Jonathan, who happens to get that handy, you know, vampire f- Vampires for Dummies book from the peasants, right? Uh, and brings it home and, you know, and then Nina opens it like Pandora's box, which she wasn't supposed to do. Um, anyway, they're the only ones. Uh, okay. And Renfield somehow for some reason, but whatever. Um, they're the only ones who know that there's a vampire. Everybody else just thinks it's the plague, right? Um, like a normal, uh, epidemic plague. Um, so, so yeah, we go from no knowledge at all up through the book itself existing, right? And everybody, uh, everybody actually, you know, having read and talking about, um, talking about Stoker's Dracula. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, Tom, it is interesting. Tom was commenting on my, my point about the increased rather than decreased emphasis on Christian spiritual stuff. Um, Tom talks about it mirroring the increased secularization of the 20th century as the world became less religious the weight of religion in the story increased that's exactly why i found that interesting or at least conspicuous i guess i would say tom um the increased secularization is exactly what would have 
led me to expect. I mean, like, for instance, we've referred to this film, which would have been uh, high on my list of other vampire films to watch if we were to let the Dracula class go on for infinite number of extra weeks, uh, is uh, is the film Blade. Um, and uh, Blade simply rejects, the, 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 that whole world simply rejects the Christian spiritual elements. Uh, you know, crosses, uh, uh, crosses and holy water don't do anything. I'm paraphrasing because Wesley Snipes uses a naughty word there. Um, but, uh, but anyway, they, you know, they, they, they totally reject the, and only the physical, like garlic works, uh, silver works, sunlight works, um, only the purely physiological, not, and they, they attempt to give physiological explanations for why those things work. Um, garlic is an extreme allergic reaction. Which apparently can make your head explode. That's like extreme anaphylaxis. It's unusual in most people. But anyway, whatever. Um, uh, uh, whereas, like, the sunlight thing is extreme sensitivity to ultraviolet light. So again, uh, but Tom, my point is, that kind of thing that that we do see in that film Blade, that's the kind of the direction I, I would have expected to be sort of a general trend. Interesting to me. That's why it's so interesting to me that these two films don't do that and don't move in that the way that that way that instead they do kind of mirror it, uh, as you said. Um, uh, yeah, Joyce, I, I, I agree with you that the Coppola, um, the Coppola film is definitely sort of the most, the most mature work of art of all of these films. Um, I agree. I mean, of these five films, I think there's no question that the Coppola version just absolutely mops the floor with almost all the rest of them. Um, I mean, you know, the Bela Lugosi version is a classic Nosferatu. People can say all they want that Nosferatu is is an incredible, mind-blowing, wonderful, silent film. I still think the Francis Ford Coppola version of Dracula just absolutely mops the floor with all the rest of them. Um, it is a really, uh, you know, although it, you know, it deviates from the books in, book in such wild ways in some ways, I find the story that it tells really compelling and throughout, even though it's deviating from the book quite remarkably in its plot line, nevertheless, is still continuously engaging with many of those same themes and questions in ways that I find really fascinating. So, um, yeah, and again, that I mean, there's a reason I spent an hour talking about that last scene today, because I think it's worth uh, taking time to uh, um, uh, to look at. Sarah Lagarde says Dracula seems to have more lines in the later films, certainly more than in the horror of Dracula, right? But but Sarah, that seems to be, um, you know, Nosferatu. Of course, it's a silent film, right? But he he doesn't have much dialogue, even you know, in the in the script compared to the other characters in the film. He's mostly a silent presence. Even um, even if it weren't a silent film, right? Clearly, that silent, that final sequence at the end, right from the bong view of him looking out the window to his like, I'm on the way, you know, to his like, I'm shadowy coming up the stairs to I am coming up and grabbing your spleen, um, all that stuff is um, is I mean it's it's all and there's no dialogue there, right? Dracula doesn't need words. Um, Bela Lugosi's character speaks comparatively little, right? Um, Christopher Lee speaks when he's the urbane Dracula at the beginning, but once he is sort of revealed as the vampire that he is, he never talks again, um, and is a silent menace throughout the entire rest of the film. So yes, these later films in, uh, they do, I mean, yeah, Mick, that seems a fair way to think about it. Mick is referring to them as the, um, 
the personalizing of Dracula. Absolutely. Yeah. And Michael, you're right. Michael says that, that uh, Dracula is the main character of the last two. He's the villain in the earlier ones, but he becomes the, the, the main character, like the protagonist uh, of the last two films. And I mean, it's not exactly the, um, the, the protagonist, but, 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 but yeah, I mean, he, he really is the central focus of the story. Um, whereas, uh, that's very much not the case, even in the book. Right. I mean, think about even like the first four chapters. Right. Jonathan is the focus of the first four chapters and Jonathan's experience. The first four chapters are the story of Jonathan's experiences in Transylvania. Right. Not the story of Dracula and what happens in England. And and that's all about what's happening to these friends who have all sworn to love and care for each other all their lives. Right. Um, It's not about it's not about Dracula. Um, So, yeah, certainly, certainly. Dracula is the protagonist of the Coppola version um, in a in a in a you know a very obvious way, um, but I think even you could even make that argument in Dracula two thousand that he is certainly a much more central figure um, than he is in uh, in the others. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yana is sort of lamenting that in the book we never get Dracula journals. You know we. we we never get Dracula's papers. Um, and it, that would be interesting. That would be interesting. I agree. Um, yeah. James makes a really interesting observations. James Stevens says, uh, he thought it was strange. That there aren't more vampires in the book. If everyone Dracula bites, turns into a vampire, there should be more. Um, you know, how often does he really need to feed? You're right, James. And, and what's more, there's, there's no, there isn't really evidence that he feeds all that often. In fact, I can only think of one example of a victim of Dracula in the book that's really fully, genuinely unaccounted for. Um, we get the sailors, right? But they all get chucked overboard. So whether they were turning into vampires or not, the ocean will destroy them. So, um, you know, they're not. And the captain, the, the captain of the ship is the only corpse that arrives in England. And he wasn't bitten because he was protected because he was protected by the crucifix, right? So um, uh, he just died of exposure. So um, uh, so yeah. So in the book, the only person, the only kind of loose end that's left is the the woman in the cartwheel hat um, when Mina and Jonathan are in the park, and he sees he has his little incident, right? Jonathan does when he sees Dracula and says, it's the man himself, right? And then he kind of freaks out and then takes a nap. Remember that scene? Um, Mina describes, she's she's looking at Dracula and she describes him, but she doesn't know who he is or what's significant about it because she hasn't yet opened her husband's diary like she wasn't supposed to yet. But she sees him, she, him, Dracula, watching a beautiful young woman and the beautiful young woman gets into a carriage and rides away and Dracula strolls off after her, right? Um, we don't know for a fact that he actually bit her, um, but if he did, she's totally unaccounted for. Everybody else is accounted for um, that we know of. But James, it's still a really interesting question, right? Um, uh, notice how those kinds of loose ends increase, right, throughout the course of the films. Nosferatu doesn't even seem to be an issue. Everybody dies. Nobody rises again. I mean, there obviously there's victims 
whole string of coffins right coming down the road but there doesn't seem to be it, it's the idea that they're going to rise again as vampires is not even on the table it seems in Nosferatu um, in the Bela Lugosi version we still do have I mean exactly Arthur as you suggest what happened to uh, the undead Eliza Doolittle you know the flower seller whom he bites when he first lands um, we don't know you know we don't know uh uh there are again there are more of those kinds of loose ends um in um in the horror of dracula well the horror of dracula is just a little is we don't he doesn't really he only bites lucy and mina um in the horror of dracula right though it's a little unclear if the little girl got bitten by lucy the first time but i guess that's okay right i mean since she's killed before the girl dies right so that makes it okay um yeah that but again that film is not james again but, but back to your broader point that film's not interested in the spread of vampirism either right um we get it in the coppola version but again they're uh, you know <laughs> Dracula is a lot more monogamous, right, in that version, except for Lucy, um, which is sort of an interesting dynamic. It's like his the counterpoint um, and like his taking of vengeance, even a sign in a sense of his own internal struggle. Um, in Dracula 2000, we get those kinds of loose ends all over the place. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's... Um, The book still seems to be focused on, like, they seems to want us to think they have contained Dracula, but if they didn't, you know, then he would make the whole world into vampires. Um, that seems to be a much more of an open possibility, which a lot of the films don't seem to be kind of coming back to. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Arthur does ask, who did he bite to get younger while in Transylvania? Well, I think it's what, what, what happens in Transylvania stays in Transylvania, Arthur. We don't really... Uh, I, that is to say, they know how to handle that, right? He must have been out biting some peasant or other, right? But that's not a problem. That's not going to lead to a... That's not going to lead to a, a, an epidemic of vampires, right? For the very good reason that those peasants know what's what, Right? So whenever the so doubtless one of the other peasants is probably going to become a vampire, but he won't have a long career, right? Because uh, all the other peasants know just what to do about it, apparently. So it's fine. The contagion will be contained in Transylvania, where people know how to handle this kind of thing. It's um, the ignorant, innocent, poor, scientific, advanced, modern people over in England who are helpless and clueless. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I should I should let you guys go. I'm drawing this last class out long now, and uh, as I've drawn indeed this entire course out long. Thank you for your patience and persevering with me uh, in this class. I hope I hope that you guys have enjoyed uh, talking about Dracula with me. I certainly have enjoyed the opportunity uh, to discuss Dracula in some of these movies. Uh, thank you very much for. Um, 
uh, for all of your uh, questions and participation and support. And I look forward to continuing with you as the Mythgard Academy uh, continues uh, rolling on in a fortnight from tonight as we begin the Lost Road. So uh, uh, be reading up on your Numenor, and I will see you guys in two weeks. Bye now. <laughs>